Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Leading Simple. I'm your host, Rusty George. Boy, there is nothing simple about understanding the culture and climate in which we're in, specifically when it comes to how do we share the love of Jesus with people we may not always agree with. And we're going to dive into that with our guest today. He is an author. He is a pastor. Uh, I called him a doctor on the last episode, but he's actually working on his Ph.D., and now he runs an organization called Messy Grace Group. His name is Caleb Kaltenbach. He is a friend of mine. He's been a friend of our churches for many, many years. And now, as the founder of the Messy Grace Group, Caleb helps churches, colleges, and organizations create healthy discussions around the topic of sexuality. You may have people in your life that are just wrestling with questions about LGBTQ and many other letters. You might have your own issues with this. Well, today we're going to jump into all of these questions that we have, and Caleb's going to be able to provide us some great information. Even if you're not sure if you agree with him, you got to admit his story is compelling based upon what he grew up with and the situation he saw the church behave in and the way the church should behave. So he's got a brand new book out this week called Messy Truth. You're going to want to get a copy of that. In fact, if you go to my website, PastorRustyGeorge.com, and you let us know that you heard this episode, we will send you a free copy of the book. There'll be a place for you to simply enter the name Caleb uh, and let us know that you are interested in Messy Truth. We'll send you a free copy for the first 10 people that go there. And that's for Messy Truth with Caleb Kaltenbach. Well, today... Our episode, again, is brought to you by Red Letter Challenge, a great resource to grow in your spirituality and your relationship with Jesus. As many of you may know, the Bible is often translated in such a way where they turn the words of Jesus into red letters. What a great way to be able to see exactly what Jesus said. And so we're doing the Red Letter Challenge with this uh, particular study. It's a 40-day life-changing study where you just walk through the words of Jesus. What a great way to get started in the Bible. So if you've never done that, check it out. If you're leading a church and you want to do this with your church, just go to redletterchallenge.com and just add slash rusty and you can get a free copy there. Also on the website, you'll find some package discounts of 10 to 40% off for all the rusty listeners out there. Again, the site is redletterchallenge.com slash rusty. Well, we got a great conversation coming up for you here with my friend Caleb Kaltenbach. Here we go. Well, Caleb, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Uh, I'm so grateful for your friendship and uh, your ongoing help for the church as we deal with difficult issues in our climate. Um, You uh, have a very unique story that some of our listeners may not be familiar with. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing and your parents and just kind of uh, what made you you today. Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, thanks so much for having me, Rusty. I love your podcast, love your friendship, uh, love our alma mater, uh, love the Chiefs. We have so many things in common. So Amen. really appreciate you. Um, when I was two years old, my parents divorced 
and they both went into same-sex relationships. My mom had a monogamous partner who was a psychologist. They moved to Kansas City. My dad was more in the closet, never had one monogamous partner, had a lot of different friends. Um, they were activists. And so I was raised in that community, uh, raised to uh, believe that Christians hated gay people. If you're not like them, they won't like you. And so by the time I got to high school, I couldn't stand Christians. I saw them as hateful, bigoted individuals. And here's what I was thinking, Rusty. I never, ever want to become a Christian because I saw how hateful they were, how they treated uh, people in my mom's community, my dad's community. And I thought to myself, okay, if Christians are this bad, I can't imagine how awful Jesus must be if he's their leader. And I really think we underestimate how much our actions and uh, words uh, towards other people really will either encourage a relationship with Jesus or discourage it and undermine it. So I went to a Bible study to try to disprove uh, the Bible, and that worked out real well, as you can tell. Uh, I had to come <laughs> out to my three gay parents as a Christian, and uh, uh, when I did, they kicked me out of the house for a while. Uh, eventually, they let me back in. I went to uh, uh, college at the Mecca of Christianity, Ozark Christian College, and eventually moved out to uh, Los Angeles for 11 years, and then uh, Dallas, Texas for a little bit. And while I was there, my mom and dad moved there separately from one another to be closer to uh, my wife and kids and I. They started attending my church, and eventually at the ages of 69, 70, they became Christians. Hmm. And so um, that's one of the reasons why I do what I do now, to trying to uh, help uh, bridge that gap between um, uh, the church and the LGBTQ community and even uh, people's faith and their love for their family and friends who are LGBTQ. Now, that's a story that you wrote a lot about in your first book, Messy Grace. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. That 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 book is kind of a third memoir, a third stories about Jesus, and then a third uh, uh, principles on what to do in everyday life and how to love people. Mm-hmm. Now you, um, I mean, you you have some horrific stories of what people did to your parents as they would uh, try to march for equality or for justice, and you probably had a pretty bad impression in your mind of what church was like, and that's what Christians were like. Now you decide at you know at a very you know formidable age in your high school years to become a Christian. How did the church tell you you needed to? respond to or deal with your parents, and what did you decide to do about that? Well, I I was lucky in the fact, I mean, I ran into uh, Christian cultural fundamentalism, like I think uh, most of us did in the mid-90s, and I even had the Lord's Gym t-shirt with Jesus doing a push-up with the cross on his back, which I'm sure there are some listeners who are like, hey, man, I still have that shirt. And (laughs) hey, more power to you. Uh, But I remember those days. Um, But I was thankful that even though I was in somewhat of that environment, there were still people over and over again who kept on telling me to love my parents, love my parents. Now, where I felt like I I went wrong is I would go to a a summer camp or winter camp or conference or something in high school, and I would get really convicted about the fact that I didn't tell my parents that much about the gospel, even though I had told them a lot. And I'm like, okay, they haven't come to faith. So obviously I didn't tell them enough. And so I would call them and I would really tell them, Hey, I I don't want you to go to hell. Um, So I need you to believe in Jesus and just stop this, stop this. And of course that went over real well. Right. Mm -hmm. And so those are, those are some of the mistakes. I think the pressure um, uh, of, of saying, Hey, you need to, uh, 
you know, help them to change their orientation and then they become Christian. And yet the Bible doesn't say anything about us telling somebody to change their orientation. The Bible tells us to bring people to Jesus and allow Jesus to, uh, uh, to deal with what he needs to deal with in their life. And so that, that's been really freeing over the years as I've realized that. I think that's such a great point um, uh, of understanding for the Christian and the non-Christian, for those that are on the outside looking in, thinking, uh, I don't necessarily want to change who I think my identity is. Um, and and just to say, listen, I, I just want you to, to meet Jesus and and he'll walk you through that whatever that might be. So, uh, I want to just uh, ask a, a, a lot of questions that I think a lot of our listeners have have wondered. I think there are some people who are listening that just assume that churches have a particular stance on this and others that think, well, wait a second, churches are supposed to be loving, so shouldn't they just affirm everybody? Can you walk us through the history of how the church has viewed the subject of same-sex attraction? Yeah, I, I think that overall, um, if we look at um, the last 100 years, even the last 50 years, I don't think that, and I'm talking about the Western church, I don't think that the church in the West uh, has done a great job at all. As a matter of fact, I think in many senses, uh, the church has been uh, horrible at it. Um, they either go one or two directions. They either uh, get to the point where they are fully affirming and they try to argue that Scripture uh, is affirming uh, of same-sex relationships, same-sex intimacy, when that's not the case at all. Even professors at Harvard Divinity School will say it's very, very hard to argue that and make that argument with integrity when it comes to the scriptures. But then you have other people on the other side of the church uh, who are more uh, conservative, culturally fundamentalist, and they really don't know what to do because they read uh, scriptures in the New Testament uh, about what, what God says about sexuality and sex and so on and so forth. And uh, also, um, they're heterosexual. And there's a reason why we call LGBTQ plus sexual minorities, because uh, people who experience these orientations or these aspects of sexuality are not in the majority in our society. And so um, it, it's not it's not normative. That's why many Christians who are heterosexual, and the majority are more accepting of divorce than they are of um, uh, somebody who uh, relates or identifies as a sexual minority. And so uh, people automatically fear what they don't understand or what makes them feel threatened. And so um, the, the church has not, uh, Christians have not done a great job in the West of really learning how to lean in and empathize and get to know people and understand them and, and realize that our differences should bring us together, not drive us apart. And so I, I believe we're at a place right now where our society obviously uh, has some meta narratives uh, that they are uh, very pushing uh, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to identity. Um, so on and so forth. And I think there are some in the church who feel very, very pressured to give in to that. There are some that are remaining stalwart and I'm not going to move and I'm just all the way to the right. And then I think that there are a lot of people like myself who are trying to figure out what does it look like to be a bridge between the false dichotomies in our society? Mm -hmm. Because when you are a bridge, yes, you get walked on by both sides, but you also defeat the false dichotomy and you allow dialogue. And um, that, that's, that's where I believe that a lot, of, uh, a lot of churches that I work with, a lot of even Christian colleges, uh, they want to be in that middle ground without uh, uh, denying their theological convictions. So when you look at Scripture, you see that 
there's almost a progression for a lot of things. And there's been a progression in the church over the last 2,000 years. You think about, there was a day that we read the passages in the Bible about slavery, and we thought, then that's okay. And obviously, uh, the church um, changed its mind on that, thankfully. We see how there are elements in the Bible that talk about divorce and remarriage, and for years, people thought you could never get remarried, and the church has changed its mind on that. Women's roles, other things like that, the church has changed its mind on, read it from a a new perspective. Is that the case with same-sex attraction? These only seven passages in the Bible that talk about it, are we just reading them wrong, and is it now time to read them in a different light? Well, I would say, I would say, first of all, um, I think our thinking about same-sex attraction has evolved. And there are really two different types of individuals uh, when it comes to conservative Christians and their view of same-sex attraction. There are those who still believe that same-sex attraction in and of itself is a sin. And there are those who I would fall into this next camp who believe that uh, same-sex attraction or what we call orientation is not sinful in and of itself. It's just when we act on it, either in our mind or through our uh, physical actions. Uh, so that that's the first thing. Um, the second thing, um, there's this uh, 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 theologian Baptist minister named William Webb, and he wrote a great book called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, uh, where he investigated uh, scripture passages that refer to homosexuals, slavery, and women. And he argued that when, after his research and in this book, that when we read the Bible, we have to differentiate between um, cultural context uh, which are apply, which are applied to a, a specific context in a specific place and transcultural context applied to everyone of all centuries of all societies. And his research in this book showed that issues of slavery and women that they are cultural because there's a progression away from tradition. Um, and and I would say that there is a strong argument to be made that God is anti-slavery, but. When he studied um, uh, homosexuality or uh, same-sex intimacy, uh, you know, Webb found no progression towards the affirmation of intimate relationships outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And thus, he would say, and I agree with him and many scholars do, that those verses are transcultural, that they apply to everyone of all times, because you see this male-female relationship kind of stringing through the Bible from the, you know, Genesis through Revelation, the book start, uh, the Bible starts in a marriage in the book of Genesis, and the book ends in a marriage, Jesus and the bride. So, there are some theologians out there that have decided to view passages like in Romans uh, and even in Corinthians and say, well, what Paul was talking about there is not a, a man and a man in a monogamous relationship. It was more of a man and a boy. Um, do do you see that uh, being a kind of a gray area there? I don't see that being a gray area at all. Um, first of all, um, there's this notion out there that either that when you look at passages like in Romans one, First Corinthians six, First Timothy, where um, we specifically deal with homosexuality, there's this idea out there that uh, the Apostle Paul had no clue what a loving monogamous same sex relationship was all about. And that's just completely false. I mean, even uh, one of the 
most renowned New Testament scholars, if not the most renowned New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, uh, says that in the first century and before, there are plenty of examples of monogamous, loving, same-sex relationships. Um, and he would he would say that still, uh, Scripture says that that God does not affirm that, and he makes his argument all the way back in Genesis one and two. Um, and and so there is that aspect of it. The other aspect is this: is that um, when you look at when you look at what what Paul says in Romans one. I think it is Leon Morris in his book, in his commentary on, on Romans, does a great job with the Greek word physicist when uh, Paul says that they exchange natural relationships uh, for unnatural ones. And a lot of uh, scholars who try to uh, reframe all these passages will say that that word natural right there, that actually refers to whatever is natural to the individual. But within the Greek structure and the syntax, that word natural actually refers back to Romans 118, where the passage started, talking about God who created everything, that he is the one that dis- defined what is natural. Um, then there are some that argue that um, because Paul didn't even mention same-sex um, relationships or loving and monogamous, even if he knew about them, because he didn't mention them, that that's not what he's talking about. And that's a pretty weak argument, because you can say that, but then you can also say, well, he didn't mention it because he's talking about all different kinds of same-sex relationships, an umbrella. And we kind of see that whole idea of the umbrella unfold in verses 28 and following in Romans 1 as he lists all these different kinds of sins. So um, the, the whole effort to try to reframe these biblical passages, it, it just, it, it doesn't work. But when I talk to somebody about, you know, what I believe about sexuality, I never start with any of those, you know, passages and you know, three passages in the New Testament or the Leviticus passages. So I go, I go to some other places. Yeah. It's interesting that for the past 2,000 years of church history, uh, theologians have pretty much seen this the same, but it seems like over the past 30 to 50 years, the church has been inundated with a different style of thinking when it comes to this. Um, how much has culture influenced the church on this? And, and, and why do you think this has picked up so much over the last few decades? Oh, I think culture has tremendously influenced this. Um, you know, culture uh, influenced uh, the deterioration of strong Christian theology throughout every single century and in every single society. Um, and yet what's really, really interesting is in the first century, um, I, I, and, and you've studied uh, Suetonius. I mean, you've read, you're, you're a New Testament guy. You've studied uh, church history and even secular history, and you know just how the first century Rome was nothing compared when it comes to sexual immorality or sexual impropriety or an inappropriate focus on sexuality. Like we've got nothing on them yet. They were at a whole nother level. And yet even back then the church really blossomed and grew through that because the church said, Hey, we're going to love people, but we are going to be different. We are going to differentiate ourselves from this aspect of culture, but we're not going to leave culture altogether. Um, but I think that uh, these ideas have spread in in Western society for a few different reasons. Number one, I think that there's a gravitational pull in every human being towards themselves and putting themselves back on the throne of their life and making sure that they are looked after more than anyone else. But then the other aspect of it 
is that I think, especially when you look in the last 100 to 150 years, there's been such an inappropriate um, effort by Christians to really be anti anything that is normative in their eyes, not to engage it, but to be anti almost everything they can think of. And, and thankfully, a lot of Christians, I believe, are trying to come around and not be like that and trying to understand and hear, but we still have that, and we're still paying the consequences of the past 100, 150 years. And so a lot of these ideas are spreading right now about identity, um, and, and people will grab onto whatever they can that will justify what they want to hear. You know, it seems like such a biblical message to say, you know, Jesus said to love one another, that we should accept and affirm everyone. And so, if a church comes out and says, actually, we uh, don't affirm a behavior, but we do accept a person, it comes across as very judgmental and non-loving, which seems to be against what the Bible talks about and what Jesus was about. So, can you address that a little bit? Is it possible for a church to accept the LGBT community, to love them, to care for them, to treat them like others, without necessarily affirming their decisions or actions? I, I think absolutely, Rusty. I, I think 100% we have to. And I think that there are two things that we have to do. Number one, we have to keep our beliefs about Scripture, about God, and about what we believe that He has said in the Bible as the foundation for everything uh, in our life, as our worldview, as the lens through which we look at life. Um, there are a lot of people, when they have changed their minds about sexuality or about uh, what they believe about relationships or, uh, or, or gay marriage or so on and so forth, this is usually what they start with. I just feel that dot, 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 dot. Or I have a friend who dot, 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 dot. And so automatically they feel like because uh, that their friend came out to them, their family member did, that they need to be fully affirming of their decision to be in a same-sex relationship or else they will lose that friendship. Number, number one, that's not necessarily the case. I, I, I know a lot of the times people try to say, well, no, that is the case. I've seen it time and time again. Yeah, but there are a lot of families that get together and uh, there will be somebody who's in a same-sex relationship and they know that they their family doesn't agree and yet they still coincide great. They have a great relationship because uh, their relationship, the totality of it is not based on who is in what relationship. It is based on their love for one another and based on Jesus. And so we've got to move away from the same mistake that the 19th century theologians made, people like Boltmann and so on, that put experience and theology at the same level. What we believe about the Bible should interpret our, our experiences and should interpret how life is. That's number one. We need to make this differentiation between what we believe in our experiences and, and really primarily focus on what we believe. Number two, I would say this, that we and you kind of already said it beautifully, we have to differentiate between acceptance and agreement. Because in our extremist uh, society, you don't really see a, a differentiation. Acceptance is agreement. And yet at the same time, I believe that acceptance is really about love. It's about Matthew 5, 38 through 48, loving somebody right where they are in the moment, no matter what. That you can't walk miles in somebody's shoes, but you can walk miles next to somebody. Hmm. I think that's what Jesus was trying to say. And there's a difference between that, which we are called to do, and agreement. We don't have to agree with everybody's political opinions 
uh, relationship decisions, um, ethical outlook, moral standard, um, movie choice, whether or not they root for the Raiders. We don't have to agree with any of that, but we are commanded to accept them. And when somebody can't see a difference between acceptance and agreement, you know that you're dealing with somebody that has an identity issue one way or another with something. Hey, let me interrupt this episode for one second and remind you we are very, very close to hitting the 1 million download. Probably will happen this month. And we want to give away something to celebrate. If you go to PastorRustyGeorge.com, you can register and you're going to receive a gift basket filled with some of my favorite things, including a cooking spice that I grew up with. I've never seen anybody else use it. I found it in a store. I bought some of them for you. My mom used it all the time. I use it all the time. We love it. Our kids love it. You're going to love it. And so that's just something different for me to give to you as a thank you. Thanks for helping us hit 1 million downloads and help us celebrate by going to the website, typing in your information, and you'll be entered to win one of our 10 gift baskets we're going to be giving out. Okay, enough of that. Back to the episode. You know that you're dealing with somebody that has an identity issue one way or another with something. Let's talk about identity for a second, because it seems like um, the people that I, I know who, um, you know, are very, very sensitive about this issue or they uh, are in the LGBT community, they're, they're equating um, a lack of agreement as a rejection of who they are. This is who I am. That's the phrase you keep hearing. Is identity and sexuality the same thing? Uh, I didn't. Well, I think that sexuality. Uh, I think that we are sexual beings. God made us to be sexual beings, uh, just like God made us to be human beings. Being a human being is part of who I am. Being biologically male is part of who I am. Being uh, heterosexual um, in my orientation—that is part of who I am. But that is not the main aspect of who I am. And I believe that God designed us to be defined by Himself. And we were made for himself. I mean, everybody that you and I see is somebody that Jesus, I mean, that God created and Jesus loved. Mm -hmm. Everybody. And so that means that everybody has the same equal intrinsic value, no matter what. And that means that if we are, if we bear his image and likeness, and if we are, are recipients of his blood or potential recipients of Jesus's saving blood, then that means that we were created to be identified primarily by Jesus and nobody else and nothing else. So anything else that we try to build that identity on will quickly crumble. It will eventually crumble. And I get it. A lot of people, they, they build their identity on something like their sexuality because they have friends who are doing the same thing and they have a community there. And I think that the church can learn a lesson here, that as much as a community and, and fellowship and friends and, and so on and so forth, as much as that really uh, uh, strengthens our identity, it can also form our identity and shift it one way or another, which is why I think that Christians and churches, as much as possible, need to offer belongingness to people that are not like them. Because community is such a strong place for people to follow Jesus. It's where the 12 disciples became Christians. Uh, people find and follow Jesus better in community, not in isolation. Okay, let's talk about that then. Because I don't think there's many churches out there that simply put a sign up out front that says LGBTQ not allowed. Um, how do we do a better job of accepting 
And what are the little things that we do that show that we don't accept that um, would not be all that welcoming to somebody from uh, that community? Um, I think some of the little things that we do that show that we don't accept is when you walk into a church and um, that that particular church has uh, brochures on their on their wall. And it'll be, this is what we believe about homosexuality. This is what we believe about divorce. This is what we believe about murder and theft. And so if I'm, if I'm gay and I walk in and I see that, I'm going to think, wow, they're putting me right up there with Hannibal Lecter and Gordon Gecko from Wall Street. So, you know, for me, I think to myself, that really doesn't work. And so I think we need to be careful what we put on our website. Um, every little thing that counts, what we put on our social media what we put on our uh, in our lobby and again some people will say well you're just telling us to hide what we believe no i'm not i'm telling you to be intentional about sharing what you believe at the right moment when god wants you to if you and i were to invite somebody over to our house i'm not automatically going to start talking to them about what's most important to me i'm not automatically going to bring up sexuality. I probably wouldn't no matter what. If they brought it up, I would switch the subject because we're eating dinner and that's awkward. But I mean, I just am not going to do that. And I think we have to think to ourselves, what would somebody feel if they came into our church, if they went to our church website and they saw that? uh, What would they see? And so those are the things that I, I feel like, you know, which just would turn people off. And we have this wrong idea that everybody needs to know what they need to know right now. And yet, just like sanctification, becoming more like Jesus is a process and what we call progressive sanctification, that we are daily made into his image, I think there's also a thing called progressive conviction. Hmm. That God doesn't convict us of everything that we need uh, to fix in that one moment, that he progressively reveals that to us over time and during different instances in our lives. That's why we'll say, man, I I realized I needed to work on that. And somebody else will say, you didn't know that? (laughs) <laughs> like I knew that. You didn't know that. I, I knew you needed to work on that. But I mean, I think God is gracious in the fact he doesn't show us everything that is wrong with us. But I think some of the little things that churches can do, and this may seem big, but it's really not. You need to have places in your church where anybody can serve, even if they don't believe in Jesus. Um, most people who attend your church do not want to be a leader. Uh, if they did, none of us would have small group leader problems. We wouldn't have any problems trying to find small group leaders or children's ministry volunteers or student ministry volunteers. We just wouldn't because that's the number one fear I hear. Well, what if they want to lead? Well, you don't seem to have a line out the door right now of people wanting to lead. So I think you're okay. But having places where anybody can serve, that's a huge thing. Um, I, I think that that right there in and of itself um, is, is huge because if you tell somebody, well, I'm sorry, you're in the same sex relationship. So no, you, you, you can't really engage. You can attend, but you can't engage any further than that. Hmm. They're going to leave. I would too. Okay. Let me just play um, a little bit of devil's advocate here in what you're saying, because I have friends who are part of the LGBT community and man, they're really good people. They love Jesus. They love the church. They just don't want to be alone. They're not looking to be promiscuous but they just want to be in a monogamous relationship, and it just happens to be a same-sex relationship. They want to get married. Um, what do you say to that? And, you know, what, what, what's your response? Well, first of all, 
I've been asked this a lot, like, why does God care? Hmm. Like, why does he care if, if I'm in a same-sex relationship? And so here's my best theological answer, Rusty, for you and for those listening. Um, here it is. Uh, I don't know. That's my best theological answer. And some people will say, well, see right there, that just kind of disproves it, says it's not a big deal. Uh, no, that that's not true at all. There are a lot of things that God says not to do, and I don't understand why. And I'm sure you're very similar, Rusty. I have many unanswered prayers that I'm still waiting for God to answer. And I have unanswered questions that God hasn't answered. And yet, in the midst of, of ambiguity and uncertainty, I think God extends to us an invitation to trust him, to take him at his word. And you know what? It's not easy. And everybody who follows Jesus has to sacrifice. And we have to get to the point. I really think that life is, uh, the Christian life is a series of surrenders over and over and over again to God, different areas of our life. We spend the rest of our life surrendering and sacrificing. And I, in no way, shape, or form, am trying to put anything that I sacrifice on the same level as, uh, as talking to somebody about celibacy or anything like that. I'm just saying that all of us, to one degree or another, have a cross to bear or many crosses to bear. And there are some more than others. But all the more reason why, Rusty, that the church really needs to understand that what, what a difficult and, and tremendous uh, thing it is for somebody who decides to be celibate. And I think that whatever church they attend— has a spiritual responsibility to walk with that person the rest of their lives, to be family to that person. Hmm. Because uh, really, nobody, like, I, I really agree with you. People don't fear celibacy because of lack of sex, uh, despite what, you know, our teenage kids may think. That That's not the reason why people fear celibacy. People fear celibacy because they don't want to be alone. There is one guy uh, that there's one guy that's a friend of mine and he is gay and he is celibate, but he is terrified of being alone. His biggest fear is that he'll die and nobody will attend his funeral. And he actually works at a funeral par parlor, hmm. uh, dressing bodies. And I've told him many times, maybe you should get a different job. You know, that's <laughs> one of your biggest fears. Um, but so his thing is he's always trying to find a community and fellowship. And a lot of Christians, when they when he goes to church or he goes to a men's ministry, they find out he's gay. All these people will kind of push away from him, mm -hmm. and they'll try to get away. And and especially in men's ministry, and it's almost as if these guys are like, well, you know, he's gay. He's automatically attracted to me. Look, dude, if you're not attractive to the opposite sex, why are you going to be attractive to the same sex? <laughs> like, it's just not the case. So I think when it comes to that that it's incumbent on us to walk with people or we have no business whatsoever ever talking to somebody about celibacy. Yeah. You have a new book coming out uh, this week and we're giving out free copies of it um, to the first uh, 10 people that go to pastorrustygeorge.com, type in the name Caleb uh, in the code box. We'll send them an autographed book from you. Thank you for that. Um, but your book is called Messy Truth. Tell us a little bit about the direction of this book. So, Messy Grace was all about an individual's uh, personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with LGBTQ friends and family. Messy Truth is about 
how can we get our LGBTQ friends and family members connected to a Christ-centered community? Because again, people find and follow Jesus better in community, not in isolation, not by themselves. So I talk about three areas that are vitally important. When these three areas collide, we see life change. Uh, God's words, empathy, and critical conversations. And I spend the last one-third of the book talking about how do you have a difficult conversation without destroying people. Um, I think that's immensely important. I think it's immensely important to understand that uh, loving your neighbor as yourself is as much truth as what God says about sex, marriage, and relationships. Um, And the fact that we need to have empathy and compassion for anyone, no matter who they are, and intentionally offer belonging, I think is incumbent to us as Christians. Uh, So I hope that this book will really encourage people and help them to connect their LGBTQ friends and family members with churches um, where they can hear the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great read, as your other books are as well. Messy Grace, God of Tomorrow, and now Messy Truth. I I love them all. So, Caleb, I'm just going to I'm going to wrap up our time with kind of a lightning round of rapid-fire questions. I know we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about this uh, because this is not an easy situation to deal with. You've seen it from both sides with your parents and how they've walked through this, how you had to walk through this, and you have countless relationships that you've walked with people on uh, in this journey. So just a little bit of uh, bite-sized answers for us that might be helpful Uh, So here we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. Jesus talked more about divorce than he did about homosexuality. Why is the church so fixated on homosexuality but gives a pass on divorce? I think because when we think about divorce, we think about it in heterosexual terms, and heterosexuality is normative to many of us. It's normative in, in every single society. And so, Uh, When we think about sexual minorities, those whose sexual orientation is different than heterosexual, um, or those who experience a a miscongruity between their gender identity and biological sex, that that is something that we can't understand. And so we are more apt to give passes to people than we can relate with than people that we can't automatically relate with. Did Jesus talk about homosexuality at all? He did. He talked about sexuality in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 when he, when he was asked about marriage and divorce, and he quoted Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. Um, and then we have to think to ourselves, if Jesus has such a narrow view of divorce, which he does, why is he going to have this open view of marriage? He talked about sexual immorality all the time, and even homosexuality, not only in Mark 19 and Mark 10, but even the word that he uses for uh, sexual immorality, porneo, a lot of people in the first century that would have brought their minds back to what God said about sex, sex in the Levitical passages. Okay, so we must be clear, there is a distinction between um, homosexuality and homosexual behavior, same-sex attraction versus behavior, correct? Yes. Yeah, big difference. I I don't think, my personal opinion is that uh, same-sex attraction or orientation um, is, is, I don't think that that in and of itself is sinful, um, but I think that the decisions that we make, whether it's in our thought life or our relational decisions or the actions we take, I think that that is sinful uh, for both people 
uh, who are heterosexual, homosexual, or whatever else you want to fill in the blank with. Next question. Are you born gay or is it a choice? I don't know really anyone who has chosen to be gay at all. I think maybe there are some people that may, especially teenagers who want to fit in with a certain crowd who might say that they are bi or something else. But I think that uh, a lot of people that I know have experienced this from a young age and they haven't been abused, molested, beaten, uh, mistreated. Some have, but many haven't. Um, But whether or not we're born that way is not you know, the most important thing. I know that it feels like it, but the Christian faith is not about a birthright. Um, it, it's about a, a point of interest, who we look to, and that's Jesus and following him and doing what Jesus said we should do. What do you tell the parents um, who are questioning, what do I do? My child just came out. I would tell them to uh, listen to their child, to thank them for letting them in, on the on on this aspect of their life they could have tried to hide it or hide it some more and yet they chose to come out to them they probably already know what their parent believes about it they want to know if their parent is going to remain in their life um don't automatically try to get your kid counseling don't throw bible verses at them don't get mad um don't try to shame them don't become sherlock and try to figure out what happened Uh, those are the wrong things to do Uh, don't do any of that Be fully present and understand that this is an invitation for you to lean into the relationship, to listen and to learn and to love. Uh, Let's say a a child is questioning if their gender is correct. Maybe they want to cross dress. What do do you say to that? I wouldn't. I've never uh, told a parent and I never will tell a parent that they should allow their child to cross dress uh, because that child is growing up biologically as a male or female. And when they feel like their gender identity is opposite of that, they dress as if they are not male or female. And yet that's what they're growing up as biologically. And and that just messes with somebody's mind. And I think that a, a good parent doesn't do that. And then, you know, you have puberty blockers that people are talking about in the U.S. Over in the U.K. right now, there's just recently a huge court decision where they said that puberty blockers actually are damaging to kids and probably shouldn't be used. And so yet we don't really talk about that here in America. So I think the parents need to hold firm with that. Can a Christian go to a gay wedding? I believe they can. I believe that they can. You can go to a same-sex marriage or wedding and uh, be there for the person, but not celebrate the union. Uh, I've gone to many same-sex marriages and weddings, so I can keep influence with that person. So I can earn the right to be somebody that they call. And I've said things like, I love you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm here for you. Um, thank you for letting me join this. You know, I'm in your corner, but I don't say congratulations or anything like that. Um, now, on another point, I myself as a pastor would never perform or officiate a same-sex wedding because of my theological convictions, but I would attend to try to keep influence with the person. Is it a Christian's job to talk somebody out of those decisions? I think that if the, pers- if the person you love approaches you and talks to you about it and you have a good enough relationship with them, then you can share what you think, um, especially if they ask. But if you don't know them that well, and, and if they don't ask, and especially if those two things are together, that's not going to go well. Um, what we need to do is we need to try to be there for that person 
to try to earn as much influence with them as we can in that moment. Can a person who is struggling with same-sex attraction or uh, has decided that they are gay, um, can they pray it away? I haven't seen that happen. There, there have been some people that say that they have prayed it away or that they've seen it. I'm not saying that it couldn't happen. I'm just saying that I have not seen that happen, and I don't know that that is the goal. I don't think that heterosexuality is the goal of uh, being a disciple in Christ. I think that loving God with everything you are and loving your neighbor as yourself is the goal. That's great. Well, so much of this, Caleb, is just living in the tension, which we don't like. We like black and white. We like yes and no. We like cancel culture. We like gaslighting. We like saying they're with us, they're against us, but the church is going to have to live in the tension of loving people where they are. Um, You work so hard to help churches in this conversation, not just to know how to take a stand, but in how to serve people and love people. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, your organization and where church leaders can find out more about you, or maybe anybody might want to ask you a question how they can find you. Yeah, uh, my ministry organization is called the Messi, uh, Messy Grace Group. The website is messygracegroup.org, and, or you can go to calebcaltenbach.com. And what I do is I try to work with churches and help them uh, design systems and processes that will honor what they believe, but also allow LGBTQ people uh, to engage the church. Uh, because, again, people find Jesus better when they are with others, not by themselves. Um, and I do that for all different age levels within the church, with boards, with staff as a whole. Um, you know, But I also work with Christian colleges and ministries. And when I started doing this, I didn't know how it would go. And it's really obviously taken off, as has the conversation about identity and sexuality in our society today. That's great. Caleb, thank you so much for the way you're helping churches, the way you're helping all of us. Uh, To anybody who might be listening, part of the LGBT community, you need to know that you are loved. We care about you, and we want to serve you. And you can connect with Caleb uh, through uh, him on social media and also on his website and also me. Uh, You can reach out at rgeorge at reallifechurch.org or hit me up on social media at RustyLGeorge. And uh, we love you and are praying for you. And uh, I love the way that Lewis Smedes talks about this in that he says it's very similar to a person walking across a room carrying a tray of dishes, and they drop the dishes. They all break in some way, but they don't all break the same. We all have brokenness in our lives, and we have to uh, figure out what we're going to do with that. We can lean into it. We can claim it's our identity. We can be mad at others who aren't like us. Or we can just all go to Jesus and he can make sense of it all, which is the goal for all of us. So, Caleb, thank you again and look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks for having me, man. Well, that was some pretty heavy stuff that we just dealt with. And I know that it probably spurred on some questions that you have. And we're going to be providing some spaces at Real Life Church to have those conversations in the weeks and months to come. So stay tuned for that. But you may want to just contact me directly. You can DM me at RustyLGeorge, or you can email me at rgeorge at reallifechurch.org. I'll be sure to connect you with Caleb if you would like to talk to him specifically. But again, our mission is to try to help you think biblically and to find Jesus and to act like Jesus in all of these situations. Well, next week, got a great conversation coming up that's going to be pretty heavy. And that's one talking about how do we 
do anything to help end human trafficking in our communities. And my guest has written a book about this and he's lived a life of trying to free kids and it's going to be an incredible conversation. Make sure you're back with us. And if you haven't already, take time to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. I think they will really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.